everybody's got to eat. And nobody likes getting sick. That's why Heroes toil in the shadows, keeping your food safe at all points, from the supply chain to the point of sale. Join industry veterans Francine L. Shaw and Matt Ragusi for a deep dive into food safety. It all boils down to one golden rule. Don't eat poop. Don't eat poop. Hello, Francine. Hi, Matt. All right. So for those of you who don't know, certain software have things like this as health check. <laughs> It'd be right before it starts. And our thing was a health check. And then we were, we didn't even start. But it is interesting how it says health check. And then it looks like a heartbeat down below too, Francine. That did not come up on my screen. So I was didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> oh, you didn't know? I know. No, I had no idea what was happening. I, I must not be as healthy as you. So the, the software's <laughs> diagnosing me. At the end of this episode, I'll probably get a recording of the video, the voice, and a health check. I hope it comes back good. Yeah, me too. So for this episode, we are going to talk about Jack in the Box. Well, uh, yes, no, we are talking of. about Jack in the Box. Kind, kind of. of. Kind of. Kind of. On the periphery. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nothing like jumping right in there without being real sure what I'm going to say. <laughs> That's exactly what just happened there. Uh, yes. I don't think people are listening because we, uh, I think, uh, I, uh, so this is interesting. So this is part of our thing is Francine and I come up with different articles and then we don't tell each other about them just because we like to see the response. So, so, so if you're like, <laughs> do these people actually research what they're about to talk about? Yes. And at the same time, no. <laughs> There's a plan, kind of. <laughs> okay. So on Jack in a Box specifically is about the book and the future, near, very, very near future, uh, Netflix documentary called Poisoned. The book and the documentary are both named Poisoned book is really interesting. I like the book. Yes. You want to explain the book kind of like, like, uh, the, both how it's written and the content of it. It's been quite a while since I have read this book. Honestly, I pulled it off my shelf last night to review it. What the book does, you know, it talks a lot about, it goes through the scenario many, many years ago. Um, you know, we learn about Bill Marler who is the top foodborne illness attorney in the country, talks about Brianne Kiner, who happened to be a survivor of the Jack in the Box outbreak. Her mother talks about Jack in the Box. Um, Dave Thino, who was a significant player during the Jack in the Box. He actually was VP of product safety for Jack in the Box during the outbreak. It talks about all the key players during the 1993 E. coli outbreak. But it's almost like written as like a crime scene novel. Uh, yeah. It, it's written so well. It's written very, very, very well. Like people who people who know nothing about really food science or food safety or whatever could read it and be absolutely fascinated by the whole entire thing. Particularly if you like kind of like crime novels or whatever or – um, real crime type stories, it, it kind of is like that. Well, and I like that, you know, if you don't know anything about, you know, to talk, we've been talking about this story now for 30 years. Yeah, actually, exactly 30 years. What happened? And there's a lot of people now that hear different, you know, if you know Darren, 
if you know of Bill, if you are, uh, know anything at all about this situation, you really should just pick up the book and read it or watch the Netflix documentary that's coming out, I guess, next month coming out. Or if you're like me and June. you have to read the book before you watch the, the movie or whatever, then read the book and then watch the movie or listen to the book. Like if you're if you drive a lot and you're like, if you're listening to this podcast and you're driving and you have a lot of time in traffic, grab Poisoned, the audio book, and listen to it because it's pretty intriguing. Oftentimes, the book can give a lot more details than what yes. the movie can. So you pick up a lot more from the book than what you can't just because there's a lot more time, per se, in a book than what there is in a documentary. But yeah, you learn how each of these people got their start and how they came into the industry through this book and how, um, really, how food safety came to be. Right. I mean, this event created the industry. Right. Prior to, and I've said this before, and I can't remember, you know, what I've said on the podcast and what I've said, you know, over the course of the years that I've been in the industry, but I was working in the industry when this, when this transpired. And prior to this, I don't remember ever talking about food safety. It's just not something that we really spoke about about. Not that we weren't worried about making people sick, not that there wasn't a specific way of doing things, but talking, food safety being in the forefront, it just really wasn't. No. The significance of cooking your burgers to a specific temperature or having food thermometers or it just, it wasn't there. You know what I mean? I can honestly tell you that People weren't running around the restaurant saying, you've got to wash your hands or you've got to wear gloves. We didn't have gloves, <laughs> you know, at that point in time. I don't remember them being in the restaurants. This was a long time ago. And I can assure you that things were being done then that aren't being done now. For God's sake, I remember running out, being sent out to jump down the trash in the, jump, in the dumpster, <laughs> to, <laughs> you know, so that we didn't have to have as many trash pickups and then coming back in and working after being in the dumpster. If people wanted a burger rare, you cooked it rare. Right. And didn't think it. And, and this was in a chain restaurant, not in a, you know, a smaller independent restaurant where, you know, oftentimes they're, the standards aren't quite as stringent. But yeah, we, um, I remember when this occurred, we were using fax machines then and I can remember faxes just flying all over the places, you know, all over the place with make sure that you do this and make sure that you're doing that because this was a big deal. This was yeah. a big deal. And, you know, in this book, I remember I was, I was looking at this today and last night, they didn't expect Brianne Kiner to survive. Really? And I wonder, had she not lived, would we still be talking about it? Uh, yeah, probably. Well, I- one of the reasons we're still talking about it is because of the, the size of the settlements. Yes. Had she died, it says the insurance terms, in, in insurance terms, the worth of a deceased child is about $200,000. But when Brianne Kiner woke up, Jack in the Box Exposure went into orbit. <laughs> I, I mean, and that's awful. <laughs> uh, and that's terrible. Yeah. I mean, that's terrible. But their exposure 
And the dollar figures of this case skyrocketed. Yeah. And when you start to talk about cases and situations like this, and it's horrible to think about it in these terms, but we're talking real world. Yep. And money talks. And the amount of money that came into play in dollar terms, you know, especially back in the day, was astronomical. If Jack in the Box survived the outbreak, it says that Jack in the Box was really underinsured. It starts to break down, you know, the insurance carriers and how much insurance did they have for the amount of people that got sick and were affected by this outbreak. It wasn't a lot of money. They're really, truly very lucky that they that they survived because you and I both know that most companies don't survive. No. And it took a long time for Jack in a Box stock to make it back to what it was before, just like Chipotle when they had that the series of outbreaks and Jack in a Box's stock dropped. It, it kind of went parallel to what Jack in a Box did in terms of the amount of time it took to, to rebound from that. Uh, but both of them had a lot of resources that they were able to put into providing the, the the victims what it is that they needed, but also weathering the storm. But a lot of companies don't. A lot of companies don't have the same resources. They had financial resources. They had which you know enables them to you know the the, the settlements, call in experts, um, put different policies and procedures into place, um, try to figure out where they made the mistakes. You know, so there's a lot of things that go into play when something like this happens. So at Food Safety Summit, we're going to be able to, there's two things I want to say. One is, I don't think that would have gone away because of Bill Marler, because of IEH, which IEH is um, the massive testing company that tests now, went into effect testing a bunch of, basically this created IEH. IEH is a lab. If you go look at IEH, um, it's a massive lab company and they tested for E. coli and and meat is how they kind of started off after this and just blew up. But Bill Marler, because Marler and Clark made a lot of money on that lawsuit and it got their name kind of tied to food safety because of this lawsuit. And after that, they made a whole entire career on it. So Marler wasn't going to let it go away. There was a lot of money and testing on the supply chain that, that made it not go away. But also Darren Detweiler became coming kind of the consumer advocate that he became, I shouldn't say kind of, becoming this consumer advocate that he became made it not go away either. Which the second point is, uh, for we're going to be talking with him at Food Safety Summit. I think we're going to be interviewing him. This would be fantastic because he's got a big role in Poisoned coming out in, in June. And it might be interesting to get his take on this too. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead, Renzi. You're 100% right. And yes, he does. Um, He's definitely a key player. And maybe not gone away, but, and I would certainly hope not because, you know, we live, eat, and breathe this world. But would it have become as prevalent? I don't know. I'm asking. I mean, I hope so. I, you know, I think it got blown up so large. I remember, okay, so in this, this happened in 92, right? What was the exact? Dates. Was it 92 or 93? I thought it was 93, but... 93, somewhere around there. And, and it was... Um, so I was like seventh, eighth grade, sixth grade. I was in middle school. And I, I remember this became like... I was... We were having conversations about this with our teachers at school. We were having a conversation with this. I remember talking to my dad about this and him, and him complaining that Jack in a Box burgers now were burnt because they, <laughs> because they overcompensated for this. But... Like I can vividly remember having conversations about this as a kid 
And it could have just been because so many people got sick and so many people were permanently injured or died, like dialysis for the rest of their life type of permanently injured. It was a, a huge hit in the press. And it was just, I wouldn't, I don't want to say overhyped because, you know, we, we, you and I both made a career in this industry and this was kind of the career creating event. But I think the media had a huge impact on that. Right. Um, it was January. They announced the outbreak in January 17th, 1993. Yeah. So my daughter was the same age as Brianne Kiner. That's how, so that's how I, I mean, I remember working and just thinking it was like, it could have been any, you know, any kid that ate that cheeseburger. It just was, it was impactful. Yeah. And it wasn't just people who consumed the food too. There were secondary infections that kill people. Well, which is Darren. Which is Darren's. Yeah. And that's, that's crazy in itself. And that's an important point. Oftentimes people think that um, foodborne illnesses happen only if you eat the food. And oftentimes it's like the secondary infections as well. Yeah. Don't eat poop. Don't eat poop. (laughs) And it's not always a matter of, you know, you eat the food, you get, you know, a stomachache or you get diarrhea, vomit, and you're better. You know, this little girl, her, her life never returned to normal. Yeah. I can't remember. Do they do they put in the book how much her settlement was? I think so, but I can't remember. It was it was So say 200,000, are we talking like millions, tens of millions? A lot. I knew what it was, but I can't remember. It, it, it I know it got to the point at which just waiting, self-insuring for instance doesn't make sense anymore. It got to the point where people actually need to buy uh, outbreak insurance, recall insurance, and then also preventative controls makes more sense now than just waiting to see if people get sick. So that's where like it created that industry was the, now people were worried about their supply chain. Now people were worried about the beef. Jack and box needed to cook that beef at the right temperature for the right length of time, but they had to do that because there was already coli in the meat. So this says 15.6 million E. coli case settlement. The headline in the Seattle Times had the whole city talking, especially those standing around the water coolers at law firms. The agreement between Jack in the Box and Brianne Kiner represented the largest personal injury award in state history. Yeah. So at that time, that was a lot of money. That's a lot of money today. But yeah, back then it was a lot, a lot of money. Right. We were just talking about the the two largest settlements was Chipotle number one. That was just the fines, right? Chipotle just got... Was fined twenty five million. Uh, mm-hmm. Bluebell was fined what was it fifteen million? I can't remember what Bluebell's was. Yeah, a lot. It was the second largest. But this, if they're talking fifteen million just in the settlements, that's 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 up there. That's really high. What's the inflation rate of that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. <laughs> but I am excited. I'm excited to see this this documentary. I don't think is there has there been another documentary or anything like this about food safety. I know there's a lot about food health, you know, like how food can make you unhealthy or, you know, certain types of things that that like the whole McDonald's eating McDonald's every day for 30 days. Those type of documentaries. But have you ever seen a documentary hyped up like this? like on a Netflix thing about specifically food safety? No. No, I have not. Yeah, so this is this is big and it's on the 30th anniversary. So 30 years it took for something like this to be created. So um, 15 in 1993 is worth 31.3 today. So it doubled. Good job, Bill. 
You just like him because he gave you a shirt. Well, I liked him before he gave me a shirt. I think he what he does is for the greater good of... I met somebody not too long ago that works in the food service industry. And we were talking just, just very briefly. All I said was, I just mentioned his name and the comment was, he's a scary guy. And my thought was, he shouldn't be. I mean, if you're doing what you're supposed to do. I mean, I understand how he can be, I guess, but there are accidents. You know what I mean? Accidents can happen anywhere, anytime. And there are legitimate accidents and mistakes that happen within the industry. Yes. An accident is different than somebody doing something that they know is wrong and trying to cover that up. Right. I can see why people would be afraid of Bill Marler, but not him as a guy, but what he probably represents. Right. But I believe that, again, his anger and frustration is with the people that are intentionally doing things they shouldn't be doing. Right. Which is, which is the anger and frustration of everybody. Right. I just did a presentation on a virtual conference yesterday about supply chain, managing your supply chain for food safety. And I went through all the different, and this was, this is like a cannabis safety conference, virtual conference. And I went through all the different outbreaks as one slide and just had all the outbreaks over the last 15 years. And the majority of the outbreaks on there were supplier issues, not end of chain issues. So everybody, um, a lot, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people go into a grocery store, they buy product, they get sick from that product. And they, they blame it on the grocery store. The grocery store will get sued. Same with the restaurant. You know, they'll consume product, mm-hmm. E. coli, salmonella, listeria, or something like that. And then they'll, then they'll think it's the restaurant. When really the majority of that type of stuff really truly is a supply chain issue. And so, you know, a lot has been focused on within your four walls. What are your employees doing? Are they washing hands? Are they wearing gloves? Are they wearing hairnets? You know, are they making sure the product gets cooked to the right temperature? You know, it's not sitting out for too long and cooling and blah, blah, blah. Right. So that's all good. But then also there's this whole other side of the food industry where you don't really know what the people below you did up that chain, right? Down the chain. Right. And so I, I I think I think people get frustrated in the industry because they have people like like Bill Marler coming after them and they're like, well, it's not really my issue. And Bill or sa- Bill says, and and I do as well, well, it really truly is because you didn't know who you're buying from or you weren't making sure that mm-hmm. they were uh, doing the, the steps correctly as well. So when you sold that product, there is something called criminal negligence. And I think it's going to get to that point at which companies stop getting sued and companies start really getting prosecuted for selling product that was tainted and they had nothing, they really had no control within their four walls but they were buying bad product. Well, and I think that, you know, especially with the small operators, so many of them don't even know that they have a responsibility to know about the companies that they're buying the product from. They should, but they don't know that it's not okay for them to go to Costco to get their products, to sell them. Not that there's a problem with Costco, but that's not an approved supplier to buy their products and resell them or make their, you know what I mean? They, yeah. they, they don't know that. They're not aware of that. They don't know that they can go to their supplier and check out their facility. There's just this ignorance among the smaller independent restaurants because they've never, 
they should know that, but they don't. It's one of the few industries where you can just go to the local jurisdiction and say, hey, I want to open a restaurant and get a license with little to no training. Right. You know, that would be uh, another episode I think we should do is terminal markets. <laughs> and what 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 is a terminal market? What do what what markets do they cater to and why are they kind of scary? Because a lot of those small mom and pop type of restaurants, I'm not saying all of them, but I'm but I'm saying a lot of them can buy from Cisco, US Foods, these broadliners that that cater to these mom and pops. But a lot of the the restaurants will buy produce from these terminal markets, you know, and they'll go at four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, pick up their produce. And these terminal markets are like outdoor farmers markets looking things on a massive scale for wholesale for these restaurants. I've been there multiple times. Some of them are pretty nasty. So let me tell you what happened the other day. We're working in the office and this guy inadvertently, there's a um, congressman across the hall from me. The other day, the office- Wait, you share an office with with a congressman? Across the hall. (laughs) Nice. So the other day, their office was closed and somebody inadvertently knocked on my door and he was asking what we did. And I hesitate to tell the story because I live in such a small community, but it's for the greater good. So I'm going to, I don't think he listens to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yet. Probably this one will be the one he listens to. Um, Anyway- knocks on the door and um, he asks what we do. So I tell him, and he's like, come out here. I want to show you something. So I get up and I walk outside and um, he's, he's a farmer and he opens up this panel van door. And when he opens it, the inside of the van is absolutely filthy. It's two gas cans sitting right inside the door and he's like, no, it's it's not here. And so he walks around the back, opens up the back, and this rancid odor comes out the mm, back doors. Nice. And it's like two big trash bags. And he said, oh, it's trash days. I've got to take the trash. I've got to get rid of the trash. And then he pulls this old banana box and sets it on top of the trash bags. It lifts the lid off the banana box, pulls off this and it's warm that day it was very warm out that day lifts off the lid of the banana box and inside the banana box are these clear plastic containers of greens some type of lettuce or clear plastic containers what do you of greens what do you mean like bags looks like salad no hard plastic they were like hard plastic like some kind of pre-made salad mix or something. No refrigeration, just hard plastic. Like somebody would use them to make a salad. Got it. I'm not sure what kind of was in these boxes. My heart skipped a beat. I mean, I think it stopped actually. I told Melissa, I'm like, it's a wonder you didn't have to come pick me up off the blacktop outside because it's sitting inside this hot panel van on top of the trash. It was filthy inside He's telling me what a good job he does and how, what a good operation he runs. And he's getting ready to take it to this farmer's market down in the city two hours from here to resell it. So it's, it's trash day and it's market day? Yes. Nice. It's nice how those two things- um, Coincide? Coincide. <laughs> uh. 
Oh, I know. I know, Francine. I've yes. seen this so much. I've seen it so. Now, shall we bet on whether or not those greens were washed? And then he starts talking to me about listeria. Oh. So he's aware of listeria. He somewhere had also, during the course of the conversation, mentioned Fismus, so he knew what that was. I just was like flabbergasted by the whole conversation and everything that took place during this like 15 or 20 minutes that this whole thing transpired. But now he's taking it down to this farmer's market where he sells, he says, somewhere between $500 and $1,000 worth of product a day when he takes it down there. And I said, he was very careful about what, he, he didn't open the door the whole way. Far enough for him to reach in, but grab this box put it on top of the bag. And I don't know how much was in there, but if he's selling 500, he's not taking one box down there. No, no, no. 100%. So it's, uh, okay. I, I, I'm confused. So you told him, yeah, uh, I do food safety. And he's like, oh, well then that case, since I know about FISMA, Food Safety Modernization Act, by the way, um, and listeria, which has a potential to call listerosis, one of the nastiest diseases you could possibly get. And he's like, here, let me show you how awesome my practices are for cold chain management with my van. <laughs> I just needless to say, cold chain wasn't discussed. Um, I'm but confused he's all proud on what the how context he's taking this down to the farmer's market and he sells it. He's all proud. He's very proud of his product. I yeah. said, well, so I start to talk about a, like a proof supplier. And he's like, oh, no, no, we, I bypass, I deal straight with the vendor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he so he knows FISMA well enough to know he's exempted. So uh, he must be small and go directly to. All right, so there are loopholes in Food Safety Modernization Act created by a senator named John Tester from Montana. So they're called Tester Amendments of Food Safety Modernization Act. In these Tester Amendments, if you are a small grower that sells directly to consumers or to grocery or restaurant, like that's going to be consumed very shortly. And you do not sell to a wholesaler. So there is another caveat there. So you can't sell to any wholesaler, but you can sell farmer's market Mm -hmm. directly to consumer or um, uh, retailer food service directly there. Then in your, and you make uh, less than a certain amount per year, then you are exempt, but that's very scary. So (sighs) we should do another episode just on some of the things to look out for at farmer's markets. I've written articles, several articles on that type of thing. But I'm just like, I'm thinking the whole time I'm thinking, okay. Because he's exempt. Why? It doesn't mean he can't kill somebody. No. You know, the gasoline spill in the back of the van or the trash that, you know, is maybe seeping on the floor or Mm -hmm. into the banana. I mean. Uh, So he has an issue with a multitude of things. One is cold chain because he's got the, the product in a van that is not at the appropriate temperature for lettuce to be going there. Uh, two is a potential chemical problem with gasoline. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe his consumers like that flavor. Like, ah, oh. <laughs> smells like I'm filling up. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we joke because again, I mean, you have to have a sense of humor to do 100%. it. 100%. But it's like, it's like, this is not okay. No. Yeah. And we have, I have these conversations a lot of time with, with, with family and friends. This is why my wife has to like, keep me from talking about what I do at some places because I mean, uh, here's, here's what I believe. I believe that the best product you could possibly buy is organic product 
farmed by a farmer that you know and trust could go to his fields or her fields and see them harvesting all that stuff. And you could buy directly from the farm and you take home. If you want to know the best, best product, that's it. There is a big gap between that and what I would just go to a farmer's market and buy product or, um, you know, buy just organic product because with organics, you can get, there's a lot more risk. Now the chemicals, you know, aren't, we had a conversation before about the dirty dozen stuff, the, the chemicals, you know, there's going to be less chemicals on that, but the potential of E. coli, salmonella, et cetera, from whatever fertilizer that is being used on this organic field is, is acute. You could die acutely for that as opposed to over a long period of time, exposure of some sort of pesticide at minute toxicities. Uh, but that's yeah, pretty scary. Some of these, some of these I've, I've audited and trained. Oh man, I've did local grower trainings, trained hundreds of growers. And I bet maybe a couple handful of these guys actually did any of those practices and audits. And when I say growers, I mean like small little growers, not big, big growers, but small little growers that have probably had the land for one, one farmer that, um, I, I trained up had the, had the original deed from the queen. I think he was in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut or something right around there and had the original deed from the queen. His family had that, oh, wow. uh, that farm for so many generations. And he was really interested in making sure that they were following those practices, even though his operation was really, really small, just because it was like 10 generations that owned this, this field. So very, very proud of wanting to keep future generations in that. But a lot of times it's just expense. It's just time. They don't, they don't have, they don't really want to do anything and it's scary. Well, and sometimes you just can't, no matter how hard you try, you just can't make them under, you just cannot make them understand. It's like, I want to say, let's take your van down here. Let's clean it out. Let's get rid of all this stuff. Let's go get some coolers. (laughs) Right. And then he would look at you like you had a third eyeball growing. Yeah. He just did not, you could, no matter how hard I tried to get, he just didn't want to hear. Yeah. So, so I think I'm excited. I mean, we were, went down a real rabbit hole on that, but I, I was able to write down like three more topics that we should discuss while we, while we were having that. Because uh, I, yeah, I think we should talk about terminal markets, cold chain, and farmers markets in the future. But I'm excited about Poisoned. I think that's going to be a really intriguing documentary. I'm excited you and I interviewing um, Darren Detweiler and possibly even Bill Marler at Food Safety Summit. And getting their take, because both of them are going to be in that documentary. It'll be interesting just to kind of hype it up prior to June. Yeah. What's next? This one, I have no clue because Francine did not want to tell me what the second part of this episode is going to be. Well, no, it's nothing. It's nothing big. It's just. Na, um, na, 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 na. So now I feel like it's going to be a big letdown. <laughs> Are you no. ducking my mouth again, Francie? <laughs> Your wife's going to be really disappointed, but no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna laugh when there's a roll of duct tape on the side of my bed. Who's that for, honey? <laughs> not touching that. Um, <laughs> so, did you know that anyone can get food poisoning? Anyone. 
So anyway, that's what we're talking about. Anybody can wait, get food poisoning. Wait, this is like this is like a headline in an article or something like that. Anybody can get food safety. No. No, not but some people are more likely to get food poisoning than others. Boy, there's that big letdown. This isn't a TikTok or anything. It's just like, God, where am I going with this? Some people are more likely to get food poisoning than others. That's what we're gonna talk about. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, some people are more likely to get food poisoning than others. And who are those people? That's what I want to talk about. Who are they? Oh, you're asking me who they are? No, I think you know, but that's what we're going to talk about. Well, that was dead air time. <laughs> okay, so let me list off. Let me list off who I think is the highest risk, and you let me know if I missed any on the way. Okay. Oh, why was that? Okay, so uh, people who are under the age of like four, people who are over the age of like fifty. People who um, have cancer or other types of immune deficiencies because of whatever chemicals they're on, whether that be chemotherapy or if you have AIDS or something like that. So immunocompromised type of illnesses. Good job. Yeah. What else am I missing? Am I missing? That's it. Well, they have they have pregnant women on this list, but oh, it's yeah. actually the fetus, I think, is more the problem right. than actually the pregnant woman. So yeah. So right. yeah, um, adults age 65 and older, your immune system actually starts to accelerate in age aging around the age of 50. And then, like you said, kids, children under the age of under the age five, because their immune systems have not yet sufficiently developed. And then people with who are immunocompromised. I think it's important for, you, for people to understand what immunocompromised means. So if somebody's taking heart medication, that does not make them immunocompromised. Right. But if they're diabetic or they have cancer, that is immunocompromised. And it's important for those people to, even, even if somebody's just recovering from like a, um, a surgery, a major surgery that might put them into that, into that category. And those are people who should stay away from things like undercooked raw animal products or lightly cooked sprouts, might not want to eat the sprouts anyway, unpasteurized milk. I love unpasteurized apple cider. Have you ever had unpasteurized? It's hard to find anymore. Have you ever had that? Uh, I live in an area where we, a lot of orchards, yeah, apple orchards. So it's just not the same as pasteurized apple cider. It is so much better. I don't think I've ever had unpasteurized apple cider. Interesting. I growing up, I, my my grandpa would make his own wine, so I've drank unpasteurized grape juice. <laughs> you know, like trying it. You know, before like right when we we're squeezing the grapes or whatever, but never apple juice. No, I have had unpasteurized milk. We had lived around a lot of dairy. My grandpa was a dairy consultant. I helped him out in high school and college, so had some of that, but. Now, no, I would never have unpasteurized milk. I remember the people who babysat my children when they were small. I remember going into the barn and it was just a very small, it was just a, they didn't sell it. They just had their own cows and they had unpasteurized milk. I'll never forget seeing them dip that ladle into that yep. puller and give my kids that milk. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> I thought I was going to have a flipping stroke. Have you ever had it from the tap? Just grab the- Me? No. No. <laughs> no? No. Uh, cows don't like it either. No. Um, and then soft cheese, which, you know, in Europe, there's a lot of- In fact, I have a friend that went over there and ate a lot of cheese. Very good cheese. That's yeah, not- fantastic cheese. Came home so sick. Yeah. Because we're just not used to it. Mexico, in Mexico too. A lot yeah. of soft cheeses in Mexico as well. In fact, there's- uh, I was- um, 
reading about the the government trying to create some sort of like marketing announcement and training to consumers of Mexican soft cheese about the dangers of that. But yeah, that was um, not super fun, but educational. That's what I had for. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, it is interesting because I doubt, I doubt many people over the age of 65 change or people who are immunocompromised. So people my age that have some sort of immune issue. I doubt many of them make life changes because of the potential of a foodborne illness. I don't think they do. And I I think that a lot of people, well, we both know that people doubt that it really impacts their health. Right. Right. I know they'll make a lot of changes in terms of for health purposes, right? They'll make a lot of food changes for health purposes. But that thought of, hey, maybe I should not be eating this. You know, I've always eaten hamburger medium or, um, but now maybe I shouldn't eat it medium. Right. And I I think that gets harder and harder as you get older and older, because, you know, you're more set in those habits. What's I've always done it this way, or I've always eaten this. So I'm going to be fine. Right. You know, you don't think about how your body starts to age, your immune system becomes weaker. And, you know, it just because you've done it a million times doesn't mean that the next time you do it, it isn't going to make you sick. My mother ate raw hamburger all the time. My sister knows better. Really? My sister, oh, wait, y'all. Oh, even as a child, I knew there was something wrong with that. <laughs> she, if she was like making meatballs or meatloaf or something, if she would season it, yeah. she would taste like the raw. Oh, yeah. My sister does it. I don't know if they both do or not, but I know at least one of them does. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, okay. So I will eat raw beef. Like take a steak or whatever and and cut a small little bit and eat it, even though I know it's. But I'll also eat sushi. So, but never hamburger because that not, that all gets mixed up and nasty. So one of the reasons why you want to have your hamburger not medium rare, medium da da da, is because while the steak is a muscle and you can cook the top and bottom of the muscle and you're killing the bacteria off of the wherever it potentially could live on the top. But when you grind it, now you're adding more of that surface area all together. And so it, it's basically like chicken or pork now when you grind it up like that. So now it comes from the intestinal tract of the beef, right? The E. coli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, poop. Poop. Lots of poop. Lots of poop. And the risk is particularly high when there's mass slaughter involved. Yes, which, which you have to have mass slaughter now because of our laws. Uh, unless you're slaughtering your own beef for your own consumption, every place in the United States that you are getting pork or beef is from a mass slaughtering plant. Right. So there are some restaurants that will serve, you can order medium rare or you can order rare burgers. Correct. Which I would not do that. I wouldn't do that even if you're not immunocompromised. No, I wouldn't either. Not in a restaurant. No. If you were slaughtering your own beef at home, would you do it then? Would you eat it rare? No. No? Well, uh, a hamburger? Yeah. No. I would eat it medium, but not rare. Literally, I will eat steak tartare. So I'm not squeamish about it being rare. I am worried though. So you've butchered your own animals, Francine. So have I. Mm-hmm. Even though if you do the butchering perfectly fine, you're pulling out all the intestines, you know, you shouldn't have anything nicking and getting on the meat mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I still, I still go, well, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. Grinding up meats, grinding up meat. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I, sh- maybe I could. I just, 
I'm not a rare hamburger person. I, I mentally, I, I just have a mental block on it. I was just curious. I um, I grew up eating because my mother ate it raw. We grew up eating rare burger. I mean, it's I know better now, but we grew up eating it rare. I eat rare. I will eat as long as my steak's warm. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> me too. I won't eat rare burger anymore. But I grew yeah. up eating it, and and we again butcher our own. Um, but as a child, child, we grew up eating everything was rare. Yeah. I mean, now it's, I mean, I don't, certainly it's not burned, but burger has to be, it's done. But yeah, steak, as long as it's warm, I'm good. Yep. It's like wave it over the. <laughs> wave it over. Yeah, yeah. I actually had someone sometime, one time asked me if uh, if it was still bleeding. And I was like, I don't know. That would add more yeah. flavor. I need some iron. That'd be great. <laughs> I try yeah. to be conscious or conscientious if I'm yeah, eating with other people because I don't want to gross anybody out. But yeah, I'm, I like rare. I like rare meat. Steak. I should say steak. Steak. Not not hamburger. Yeah. Well, on that note, don't eat poop. No, no poop. Because you don't want to poop. <laughs> don't want to eat poop. Okay. Well, that's another episode down. Yeah. Almost three months. That is that is fascinating. I, th- this three months have gone by so fast. How do we have that much to talk about? I don't, it was never the <laughs> issue of talking, Francine. <laughs> you and I have never been accused of not having enough to talk about. <laughs>